Hello, and welcome to the Power Your Advice podcast. The Power Your Advice podcast is designed to bring financial advisors new ideas, why those ideas should be considered, and how to implement them into your business. This podcast is brought to you by Advisorpedia, the best place advisors come to grow their minds and business. This is your host, Doug Heikinen. And today we're wel- we welcome Christian Manafo, who's the Chief Investment Officer at Liberty Street Advisors. We have a super topic today, late stage capital investing, especially of Liberty Street. Welcome, Christian. Doug, it's great to be with you this morning. Thanks for having me on. For those that may not be familiar, can you explain what late stage venture capital investing is and what a secondary strategy entails? Sure, I'd be happy to. So let's start with the proverbial two guys or gals in a garage in Silicon Valley trying to engineer a new software application or perhaps um, a technology that's a bit further along at the beta testing phase before executing on an actual go-to-market strategy. That's not what we do. Uh, There's nothing wrong with a strategy like that, but the earlier stage nature of those companies comes with a different risk profile. Uh, So instead we focus on what is called later stage venture capital and growth oriented investing, which basically involves looking to build access to companies that have moved well beyond their startup phase of development and the associated technology risk. Uh, They've often validated the value proposition for their product or service. They have an established market presence. They've already built out a management team, an employee base. They've started generating significant revenue traction, often across a, a broad customer base while demonstrating attractive growth metrics and are on a likely path for an exit event, whether that exit event be a merger acquisition or a public oriented offering within the the next few years. So that's kind of a very high level description of what late stage uh, venture capital and growth investing involves. In terms of secondaries investing, so secondaries, and I'll just touch this at a high level, It's essentially a way to provide existing investors and shareholders in the private markets, which includes venture capital and growth, to receive liquidity for what are illiquid investments. And that could range from uh, someone owning an interest in, let's say, a venture capital fund to working with managers of venture capital funds to solve potential liquidity challenges they're facing, and then all the way down to working directly with investors and employees of companies. And so it's really trying to provide liquidity in an illiquid market. And you know, just for some perspective, and perhaps we'll touch on this more as we go through the podcast, you know, when I got involved in secondaries back in 2005, there was roughly six billion of annual reported transaction volume involving secondaries transactions. Whereas now today we're on likely a hundred billion dollar run rate. So it's been a a very high growth market. So that's a very high level description, um, but we can dive in deeper as we progress. Yeah. Um, This isn't something we hear very much about in our industry. You mentioned you've been doing it for a while. So how did you get involved in it and, and why did you pick this? 
Yeah, it's it's one of those things where it just kind of crossed my path. I guess you could say <clears throat> I started my career as an investment banker over 20 years ago, spending most of my time in uh, the tech TNT, if you will, space. Uh, I later went on to work closely with venture backed companies, helping them to optimize their business and operating models, as well as helping them raise capital. And it didn't take very long, Doug, for me to get hooked on all of the private innovation that I was seeing in this venture capital ecosystem. And so I, I was contacted along the way uh, by a firm that was looking for someone to help build out their secondaries practice. And as I started learning more about what this market involved, as well as the trends I was seeing with more and more capital flowing into the private market, it, it became clear to me at the time, this was an asset class that was poised for significant growth as there was likely going to be an increased need for liquidity solutions as more and more capital came in for an asset class that's structurally illiquid. And so the more time I spent with venture capitalists and, and growth investors and the management teams of the underlying technology and innovation oriented companies I was looking at while understanding the challenges they were, they were facing you know, I, I was one of the early secondary investors that really began to develop more complex liquidity solutions that have only recently become more mainstream. Um, and I guess what you can say is what, what compounded my interest even further was the level of inefficiency uh, compared to public market investing, which often allowed me to enter into companies and, and funds in this area at what were attractive discounts to their fair market value or, or their intrinsic value, which really set things up nicely to generate attractive risk-adjusted returns uh, for my investors. We all understand IPOs, you know, Airbnb, Coinbase. Tell us more about why this opportunity is so interesting. Sure. So the, the most important point to understand is, and I've probably said this two or three times already, you know, this is a, a structurally illiquid asset class. And because of that, there's arguably greater inefficiencies and dislocations than we might see in the public markets, because there's no, you know, ubiquitous private market exchange where you can buy and sell securities in these, you know, interesting high growth innovation oriented companies at the click of a button on, on your favorite brokerage platform with price optimization and all the other great benefits we have with public market investing. And this is quite important because what it does is it, it allows sophisticated investors to essentially take advantage of these inherent inefficiencies um, on behalf of our investors. So that, that's one of the reasons, Doug. Another reason is you know, if we look at the last decade alone, there's been about $6 trillion committed to the overall private market, of which roughly, you know, call it one to one and a half trillion has been allocated to venture stage opportunities. So it's a very large market that we're, we're looking at. Uh, also, in, you know, perhaps we'll touch on this later as well, we've seen very clear trends over the past couple of decades where the number of publicly traded companies has essentially been cut in half while the number of private companies continues to surge. 
And they're also staying private for longer and growing into much larger, more valuable businesses. So your, your average investor, your average public market investor arguably has less opportunities for alpha generation in the public markets while there's significant asset growth and capital appreciation happening in, in the private markets. And then I would just say, finally, advances in technology and innovation um, that are typically developed and financed by venture capital investors and similar players in the ecosystem just continues driving significant change across practically all industries, which we were just reminded of over the past year with COVID. So, you know, this asset class in particular within the private markets, in our opinion, uh, is an extremely exciting place to be. So I guess to summarize, you have a very large inefficient market that allows for attractive risk adjusted returns for opportunities in very exciting technology and innovation oriented companies, which can complement an investor's public market exposure. And due to the way these private markets operate, most private market strategies tend to be non-correlated to public markets and exchanges, which is, which is even another important point for portfolio construction uh, to consider. Has the market opportunity and this type of investment strategy been around for a while or are companies getting smarter in your opinion? So it's a, it's a kind of a newer thing that you're paying attention to closer. Yes, it's, I mean, if I compare the current market education versus, you know, 15 plus years ago when I got involved in secondaries, we've come a, a very long way. Um, you know, the most significant trend we've seen, as I noted, you know, a couple moments ago over the past couple decades is that private assets are staying private for longer. And what we're seeing as a result of that is you know, this protracted life cycle of these companies allows for them to grow into much larger businesses and much higher valuations by the time they go public or in, in many cases get, get acquired. And so, um, and so that's a very important trend to understand. And, you know, we need to understand that not all shareholders whether they're employees or investors of a private company, have the same liquidity horizon, right? If we look back to the 90s, uh, venture-backed companies were typically going public in roughly four years from inception, whereas now it's taking on average more like 12 to 15 years, and in some cases, even more. And look, while there may very well be good reasons for them to stay private for longer, the protracted life cycle often creates friction within the ownership structure of venture and growth funds and the underlying companies themselves. And this is primarily what we try to solve for uh, by providing liquidity options for structurally illiquid securities, while of course building diversified access to our clients, you know, so that's that's something that has definitely become more prominent, and I think widely accepted uh, in recent years. And you know, if we look at the average market caps also of venture-backed companies over that same time period, the average market caps of companies that are going public now 
are close to 800% higher than what we saw back in the 90s, 800%. So again, there's, there's massive capital appreciation happening in the, in the private market. And so Doug, when we think about companies that you know, many of us know, like Microsoft and Apple, Oracle and Amazon, most of the value creation in these companies has occurred publicly, which, which because they went public earlier in their development, which has allowed the vast majority of investors to be able to access that growth. But because a significant amount of this value accretion is happening before many of these companies go public, it's that much more important to be able to access these companies. And that's also why you tend not to see such a significant run-up in value once they, once they go public. Um, and then I would just say, you know, as well, you know, the, the private market investors that typically, you know, invest in the last round of financing, you know, are, are often doing so because they think there's going to be some type of a pop before they enter the, the public markets. And so we're seeing more and more companies trying to establish a foothold um, before they go public. But for all these reasons, and given all the, the money that's come into this market, there's just a really large pent up supply of these late stage companies. That's not to imply, Doug, that they're all going to succeed um, because they're not all, all going to be success stories. But overall, we continue to think for the reasons I just talked through that the market's come a long way in understanding the value proposition. How broad is the universe of these companies and where does Liberty Street focus? Sure. Yeah. So the, the opportunity set is, is, is quite significant, you know, so, so within Liberty Street and within the fund that we manage that focuses on this, which is called the private shares fund, we're focusing on usually companies that are generating at least $50 million in revenue. Sometimes we'll go a little bit earlier if we have reason to do so. But the reality is most of the companies we're investing into are often doing hundreds of millions, if not billions in revenue. They're companies that we think have strong, differentiated and sustainable operating models going after large addressable markets. Uh, of equal importance, they have experienced operators across the management team uh, well-heeled investors sitting on the board that are that are well aligned and based on the diligence that we do there's there's likely to be an exit within call it two to four years at a value that we think is well above our entry point we, we look we look around the globe so we're not just investing in u.s companies but that is the majority of what we do and we're not just investing through secondaries, as I was describing, we can also invest in what are called primary investments, which means you're just investing in a new round of, of financing. Um, and when you look at our portfolio, what you'll see is a significant amount of technology and innovation, but across a broad variety of underlying industries. When we were chatting earlier, you mentioned that Liberty Street is democratizing access to these type of investments. How are you doing that? Yeah, great question. So if you're an institutional investor or a high net worth individual with the proper accreditation requirements and the ability to make large investments, 
you may already have opportunities to invest in private markets um, through you know your typical you know 10-year life fund with you know multiple extensions um, but that but even if you have access through your accreditation and investment size the venture capital market in particular is an asset class that's fairly closed where not even you know wealth or accreditation can guarantee you access it's a very closed circle and and that's where you know myself and my colleagues have spent most of our careers and so we have very deep relationships uh, in into this into this ecosystem um but what we just talked about that leaves out a very large demographic of investors who don't have the proper accreditation requirements or may not be able to make large investments and that's exactly what we had in mind when we created this fund. So what we have, Doug, we have a, a, a registered fund under the 1940 Act that has been structured as what is called an interval fund. And with this structure, we are able to essentially democratize access to this strategy to all investors. So Main Street can be investing in late stage venture backed companies. And unlike the typical private funds that come with burdensome subscription documents, you know, K-1 tax reporting, perhaps infrequent valuation reporting, multiple layers of economics, we essentially enable advisors and investors to invest in our fund simply using a ticker, um, kind of like how they may purchase a, a mutual fund uh, on their favorite exchange. And we have 1099 reporting, so it's easy tax reporting. We value our funds daily. We often offer structured quarterly redemptions up to 5% of the, the net assets of the fund. So what we've essentially done is allowed for all investors to be able to access this private technology and innovation through a very seamless fund structure. What advice do you have for advisors who might be considering this type of investment for their clients? Yeah, the most important advice I would say is that while we've made what we believe we've made the fund easy to invest in and provided for quarterly redemptions to truly benefit from a strategy like this, you need a multi-year investment horizon. So when I was you know, talking earlier through uh, you know, the types of things we invest in, you know, what I said is we're typically looking for investments that we think have the ability to harvest within two to four years from our investment date at a value that's substantially higher than when we got in. But in order to benefit as an investor in our fund from that, you need to have a multi-year horizon. So, you know, investors or advisors that may try to come in and out uh, one, they're not going to do us any favors because it can create some challenges for us from a, from a fund liquidity standpoint, but it's just not going to provide the, the return profile and benefits that it's designed to offer. And so, you know, I guess what I'm saying is, Doug, one of the most important things we tell advisors is that we're looking for, for patient longer term capital. Uh, we also tell advisors that even if they have clients who are fully accredited with an ability to make large investments, in the hundreds and thousands of companies that are available, they still may prefer using a fund like ours, given the administrative ease. Um, so we also tell them, look, even if you have clients that are large and accredited, this may also be a solution for you. And I would just say lastly, and I pointed this out earlier, 
we, we often find, Doug, that advisors like the fact that our fund is non-correlated to the public markets, which on its own can be a prudent diversifier uh, within their clients' portfolio construction. Um, so ho hopefully that those are those are good uh, good points of advice. Great points, and it's a fascinating opportunity. Thank you. Christian, we really appreciate you joining us today. Thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having us on. You can learn more about Liberty Street Advisors by visiting libertystreetfunds.com. Please follow us for all the latest updates on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook, all at Advisorpedia. For everybody at Advisorpedia, our producer, Jakey Beard, and the Power Your Advice podcast team, this is Doug Heikinen.